Turn, if you would, <laughs> to Mark chapter 9. Somebody asked if we were in Colorado last week. No, we were in California. Somebody asked what part of California. I said the Disneyland part of California. <laughs> we uh, took three of our kids and one son-in-law and one grandson. I would say we took the grandson, but actually it was the son-in-law's birthday, and that's what he wanted to do, so that's where we went. That's what his wife wanted to do for him, or something like that. <laughs> Yesterday, we drove 445 miles and ended up right where we left. How weird is that? We went to uh, Nacogdoches. My daughter goes to Stephen F. Austin. Do we talk about you, Teresa, or not? <laughs> My daughter is in an organization called DAC, Dancers Against Cancer. They do activities to raise money to uh, support uh, cancer issues. And so they had their fundraiser, and as part of their fundraiser, they always have an auction. Now, you have to understand, these are the parents of the students, and so they don't raise a whole lot of money. Well, Teresa had made a quilt for the auction out of old DAC t-shirts, okay? And she was hoping it would sell for $100 or $150 or something, and it sold for $1,200, so. <laughs> so, she was the hero of the show. Now, we didn't get to see that, okay? Because we went to the morning show, and that was at the evening show. Last night, we were at the Marine Ball. You went to the Marine Ball, didn't you? We have a son who's a Marine, so we went to the Marine Ball. Anyway, Mark chapter 9. Uh, yeah. Well, I, I had this confession to make. I just found this out two weeks ago. You know, I, I always start my lesson telling you what my kids are doing and all that kind of stuff. My oldest son admitted that he goes back and listens to the first couple of minutes of my lessons just to find out what the family was doing 10 years ago. <laughs> you know, whenever a baby's born or something, he'll go back, anyway. <sighs> Where were we? We're in Mark chapter 9. We're going to start today in verse 38, but we'll take a little bit of a running start. If you remember, last lesson, two weeks ago, we did the transfiguration. Then we had a discussion about uh, the fact that the disciples could not cast the demon out. More about that in just a moment. And then we had a discussion about who is the greatest in the kingdom. Remember, they had been walking along, they got wherever they were going, and Jesus turned and calmly asked them, what were you talking about on the road? Well, they were all too embarrassed, but he knew what they were talking about. What they were talking about was who would be the greatest in God's kingdom. And Jesus brought a little child forward and said, if you welcome one of these, if you come like one of these, you are the greatest in the kingdom. Remember that, because we're going to talk about it in just a moment. So, 
Verse 38, John said to him, to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Okay? John is somewhere, you know, Jesus and the disciples, and John and some of the disciples are over here, and they see someone casting out demons in Jesus' name. Now, why would he do that? How would he do that? Obviously, he had heard something about who Jesus was, what Jesus had been doing, and apparently, he was having some success at it. And the disciples are ticked off because he's not in our group. Nobody but our group can do things in the name of Jesus. Nobody except those who are in our inner circle can do the work of God. And the disciples were ticked off. Now remember, less than two weeks ago, the disciples had tried to cast out a demon and were unable to do it. So if you're ticked off that he's not in your group, you're probably even more ticked off if he's successful at doing it because you were having difficulty doing it. So John, on behalf of the disciples, confronted him and said, stop this. You're not one of us. You don't have the authority to do it. Now, you would never do a thing like that, would you? But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterward to speak evil of me. Leave him alone. Don't bother him, because if he's doing works in my name, he's not going to turn around and then say bad things about me. Now, I do think it's humorous. In the book of Acts, I think it's at Corinth, some local magicians, okay, local magicians, decide that Paul is over there casting out demons in the name of Jesus, so they figure if Paul can do it, we can do it, and so they go to the demon and they say, in the name of Jesus and in the name of Paul, leave this person. And to me, it's almost a humorous situation because the demon talks back to him. I know who Jesus is. I know who Paul is, but who the heck are you? And they beat him up. <laughs> but somehow, this person, whoever they were, I would assume that they actually were part of the followers of Jesus. They just weren't in the group of the disciples. We're doing the work of Jesus apart from the disciples. And Jesus said, leave them alone. Don't bother them. Now, at this point in my mind, I have a long discussion that I don't want to have. So I'm not going to have it. But it goes something along this line. I oftentimes get very concerned because people are following Jesus and doing the work of Jesus 
in ways that I don't necessarily agree with. How dare them? And part of me just says, okay, that's Jesus' problem. If Jesus wants to deal with them, if Jesus wants to let the demons beat them up instead of actually being effective in casting them out, who am I to say? Okay? But we're not going to have that discussion. Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. If they're not fighting against us at this point in time, we'll take all the friends we can get. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. You, the disciples, are going to go out. You're going to share the gospel. They've already done this. They're going to do it again. And somebody brings you a drink because of Christ. And Jesus tells them that person is going to get a reward. Now, it doesn't really say what this reward is, so we won't spend a lot of time speculating what it is. But the observation is that when things are done in the name of Jesus, they are effective. They are efficacious. They <laughs> obtain some result. And the fact that whoever is doing this isn't of our inner circle should not bother us. Now, I might add, elsewhere the scripture is going to talk about, you know, the purity of the church and not allowing false teaching in the church and all of that. And I understand that. And we need to be aware of that. We need as a church body to deal with this. But I think this is teaching us, cut them a little slack. I happen to think this person was a follower of Jesus. He just wasn't one of the 12 disciples. Whoever comes, whoever causes one of these little ones, what are the little ones? Remember the child that he just brought up? You don't want to be greatest in the kingdom? Here, let me show you a child. Whoever causes one of these little ones who, be, who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than when two, with two eyes to be thrown into hell. That's pretty strong stuff. What we're going to see in this passage are four comparisons. The first one is the easier one. That doesn't mean it's easy. It just means it's the easier one. One side of the scale, 
causing a child who believes in Jesus to sin. The other side of the scale, taking the biggest rock you can find, a millstone was the stone that turns to grind the grain into wheat. Taking the biggest stone that you can find, tying it to yourself, going out into the ocean, and jumping in and drowning. Those are the two options. Which is worse? Which is better in the eyes of Jesus? It is better for you if you are drowned in the depths of the sea rather than lead a child astray. Number two. If your hand causes you to sin, chop that sucker off because it is better for you to enter heaven with one or live the rest of your life with one hand than to enter hell itself with two hands. If your foot, if your eye, now, does anybody have any trouble with this? We don't have a lot of people in our church who are missing an eye or a hand or a foot because it was leading them into temptation, right? So what does this mean? Well, the obvious answer is it's teaching us that we are to take sin very, very seriously. But do we? Do we really believe that sin is that serious? Let me propose something to you, okay? You and I encounter some temptation. No show of hands. How many of us had a temptation yesterday? or this morning, or on the way to class. We were tempted to do something. How do we respond to that temptation? Well, let's create a scale. On one side of the scale is to do nothing. Just give in to it, right? Piece of cake. We give in to the temptation, we sin, we ask Jesus to forgive us, we're forgiven, no big deal, no harm, no foul. At the other end of the scale is lopping off body parts. Your hand, your foot, your eye. So that's the scale. That's God's scale about how to handle temptation. Now, the scripture tells us that when we are tempted, God will provide a way out of that temptation. So my argument is between this end, do nothing, and this end of chop off body parts, God has provided for us some way out of that temptation. 
He has done that. He has provided us a solution. Let me propose a second scale, shall we? This is man's scale. My scale. We'll start at the same place. Do nothing. Just give in to the temptation. Somewhere here, it's the, well, it's awkward to fight this temptation. It's uncomfortable to fight this temptation. It might make me look bad if I don't give in to, the, to this temptation. I don't want to fight it anymore. I just give up. Now, I'm a long way from that point over there, right? But you know what? It's just too much of a hassle to fight the temptation. I always love this example. I've used it before. A pastor in town who is, uh, teaches the, a singles group said he always has people come up to him, guys come up to him and says, these are single guys, I am really struggling with pornography. And the guy says, let me have your phone. Okay? And he says, I'm going to keep it. What? Are you nuts? I have to have my phone. Then you're not struggling with temptation. You're toying with temptation. You're playing with temptation. Why? Because this is the temptation. This is where they're watching all of it. My argument is this. You and I toy with temptation. You and I play with temptation. You and I put up with it for a while, and then we just give in and trust the grace of God to take care of us. Let me go back to God's scale. One end of the scale, do nothing. The other end of the scale, chop off body parts. Now, as an actual fact, chopping off body parts really doesn't cure temptation. Just saying. Why? Because the temptation and our sin, as Jesus has taught earlier, is a matter of our heart. Our heart is what causes us to sin. What Jesus is telling us here is to take it very, very seriously. To the point where we would be willing to cut off body parts. So here's the question to you. Do you really believe it's better to spend the rest of your life maimed or go to hell? Think about that just for a moment. Is it better to not fit in to the society in which you live, is it better to be uncomfortable around your unbelieving friends? Is it better to just do it because that's what everyone else is doing and end up in hell? Now, I know what you're saying. I know what you're thinking. Those aren't the only two options. Okay, I know I've been saved by grace. I know that Jesus has paid the penalty for my sin. I know these things. So whatever I do, it doesn't matter. 
Let me give you a hint. If you adopt the attitude that whatever I do doesn't matter, it's a red flag that maybe you are not what you think you ought to be. Just saying. Now, we know that we as believers fall into temptation. We fall into sin. The book of Galatians tells us those who are stronger help the brother who has fallen into temptation. We know that. But if I reach the point where I don't care whether I sin or not because, hey, it's all grace. You need to go back and read Romans chapter 6. What should we say then? Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Loose translation, heck no. Jesus is telling us that temptation to sin is a serious matter and we need to treat it as a serious matter. And sometimes, yeah, we're just not there. Now, that raises the next question, which is, what is a temptation? A temptation is anything that leads us to violate the word of God, the commands of God, the instructions of God. God says to do this, and we want to do not this. That's a temptation. We are told that Jesus was tempted, just like you and I are tempted, but he never gave in to that temptation. We are told that when we are tempted, we are not to blame it on God. If only God had not put that apple pie in my refrigerator, I would not have been tempted to break my diet and eat the apple pie. It's not God's fault. I eat the apple pie because I want to eat the apple pie. It's not God's fault. There is a way out of it. But that way out of it may be uncomfortable to us. And that's what bothers us. It may mean saying no to things that everyone else in the world says yes to. It may mean being ostracized by certain groups of people. It may mean all of that. And you're sitting there thinking, yeah, that really applies to those youngsters. No, it applies to every one of us. There's not a one of us in this room who is not on a daily basis tempted to, to some sin. It may be different than somebody else, but it's always there. And Jesus is telling us to take this seriously. So, the hand, the foot, and the eye. But let's back up to the first one of these three, the uh, four, the first one. Back to the leading the little children astray. There is a word for this. I have mentioned this before, and that word is scandal. The technical definition of scandal is when I sin in such a way 
that it encourages or leads someone else to sin. I sin and get away with it. And my grandson who is watching me says, ah, if Papa can do it and get away with it, I can do it and get away with it. And the technical definition is scandal. And Jesus is saying, take the biggest rock that you can find, tie it around your neck, and go jump in the ocean. Now, at this point, I really could bring my soapbox out, put it here, stand here, and scream and shout for the next hour about how we as a society create scandal for our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren by what we permit, endorse, allow, encourage in our society today. That, to me, is a scary thought. Now, here's the question. What is better? Which is better? To cause a child to fall away or to have a big rock tied around your neck and thrown into the sea? Jesus is not very uh, gray about this matter. He's very clear one is worse than the other. When we sin, particularly when we sin in a public way, we create the opportunity, we create sin in other people. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. In case you are confused, Jesus does believe in the reality of a hell, and it's a really bad place. Okay, let's just stop right there. Now, if you're paying attention... I saw Van walk in. Van's copy of the Bible that he's reading has two verses in there that we didn't have. Did you notice that? Okay. We had this discussion a while back. What some of the manuscripts do is they take verse 48, where the worm does not die and the fire doesn't quench, and they insert it again between the cut off your hand and cut off your foot, after each of those verses, remember, hell is a bad place. The manuscripts that were used to translate for most of the modern versions only have that once. But you know what? I'll go with this one. If we need to emphasize this, let's emphasize this. Hell is a bad place. Hell, well, it's worth any price to avoid it. 
Let's just say that, okay? For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourself and be at peace with one another. You have heard this phrase over in the Matthew version, right? The Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount. You are the salt of the earth. You are God's flavor to the world in which we live. You are to have an influence in society. But what happens if you as salt do not perform the function of salt? Well, the Matthew says you're thrown out and they cover the roads with it and you're trampled underfoot. Now, I think this last phrase, though, is very interesting. Have salt in yourself, okay? We are to be the salt to the world. We are to demonstrate Jesus and his love and his gospel to the world in which we live. And be at peace with one another. Let me just give you a hint. One of the best ways of losing your saltiness is to spend all of your time at war with the other believers. Jesus, Jesus, there is a guy over here casting out demons in your name and he's not one of us. Guess what? I could spend every moment of every day attacking every Christian in this country who is not a Christian the way I think they ought to be. And that might be a lot of fun. I mean, let's just say it. That might be a lot of fun. But it's not sharing the love of God with my neighbor. You and I may think that we're doing a good deed by attacking other believers. The unbelieving world just looks at it and laughs. Okay? Just saying. Once again, we as a church are required to look at false teaching and deal with false teaching. No question about that. But what we want the world to see is the love of the believers. If we are going to be effective in society, if we are going to be the salt We need to be at peace with one another. Let's just start there. Now, my plan has almost worked. I have eight minutes left. (laughs) And we're going to do the first part of chapter 10. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan and crowds gathered to him again and again, as was his custom, he taught them. (laughs) And Pharisees came up to him in order to test him and they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Wife. Divorce is and always has been an exceptionally 
controversial subject. If it wasn't a controversial subject, the Pharisees would not have used that as the question to ask Jesus. And let's remind ourselves just a little bit of about, I don't know, four or five lessons ago. John the Baptist let it be known that Herod could not marry his brother's wife, and that was an invalid marriage, and that was a bad thing, and Herod locked him up. And Herod's wife, through her daughter, got Herod to chop off John the Baptist's head. So here you have the Pharisees. These people are not stupid, okay? They're very good at their understanding of the law. They're very good at their understanding of the society in which they live. And they come to Jesus, hey, is it okay for a man to divorce his wife? All Jesus has to go is, you know what? Herod married his brother's wife after they got divorced. That was a bad thing. No, it's horrible, wretched. And guess what? Who's the next guy in the prison? Jesus. Who's the next guy getting beheaded? Jesus. And the Pharisees have accomplished their job. You know, right, that they're not particularly interested in a theological discussion at this point. They're not interested in right and wrong. They're interested in dealing with Jesus. So they come to Jesus and they ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? I am resisting And I've told you before, I'm not going to just jump over to the Matthew passage, which actually is a little bit more in depth. We're going to deal with this right here. What did Moses command you? Okay, that's a good question for him to throw back at them. What does the law tell you? They said Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. That's what the law allowed. Okay? Now, the Matthew passage, and I told you we're not going to go over to the Matthew passage, asked the question, can he do it for any reason? Any and every reason. Because there's, you know, we had a scale a while ago. There's another scale. Never, ever, 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 ever can you divorce your wife. She burnt the dinner. I'm done with her. (laughs) That's the scale. Where on that scale is divorce permitted? But Jesus kind of rephrases it to them. They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. He didn't do this as a favor to you. He did it because 
you, the Jews, in the Old Testament, dealing with Moses, were hard-hearted. I'm a man. I'm married. I get ticked off at my wife. That would never happen. (laughs) Is my nose getting longer? But you know what? I don't want to divorce her. I might have to give her her dowry back. I don't want to divorce her, but I'm not going to treat her well. In fact, I'm going to start visiting the poor lady down the street who just needs some sympathy and encouragement, right? And my wife is not being provided for. I'm not taking care of her. She doesn't have any resources, and there's nothing she can do about it. And Moses looks at this situation. No, God, through Moses, looks at this situation and says, if I'm going to go philander with the lady down the street, I at least have to determine the status of my wife by filling out a piece of paper that says I divorce her. I have to make it public what I'm doing. But it wasn't done because I was a great guy. It was done because I have a hard heart. Let's continue. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Because of the hardness of your heart, God allowed divorce. But Jesus goes back to creation to discuss the purpose of marriage. You know, we have difficulty understanding things if we don't understand what it was created for. You know, a child picks up some mechanical device. I know this for a fact because I have grandkids who go around and pick up every mechanical device without having a clue what that mechanical device is supposed to do. In the same way, if we don't understand what the purpose of marriage is, we can't discuss Divorce. What is the purpose of marriage? Companionship. It is not good that man should be alone. Procreation. The bringing of children into the world. And number three. And these are not necessarily in order of importance. Number three. We know. Moses didn't. We know that marriage is a picture of the relationship between Christ and his church. That's the purpose of marriage. Now, here's the question. What does divorce do to that picture? It leads you to believe that that relationship between Christ and his church is very flexible. It can come, it can go, it can be here, or it can not. No. That's not the purpose. The purpose is to demonstrate the relationship 
of Christ to his church. We have to understand the purpose before we can understand the problem. What is the problem? The problem is you and I are all sinners. And we have hardened hearts. And sometimes, in order to control the damage, Moses allowed a certificate of divorce to be written. I will throw in my universal caveat when we talk about this because it is very important. Marriage is very important. There are situations, though, you as a wife or as a husband, but usually it's a wife, are never expected to sit there and be a punching bag to somebody else's violence. Let's just say that right there, okay? You are never expected to sit there and be a punching bag to somebody else's violence. Whether that violence is physical, emotional, whatever it is. Ideally, the church would deal with that. But we live in a world of sinners, and sometimes it is necessary to receive the protection of the law to keep that relationship from degenerating further than it already has. The Matthew passage permits divorce in the case of sexual infidelity. Someone is not maintaining the covenant of marriage. Now, it doesn't require it, but it does permit it in that case. That's why this becomes an exceptionally difficult topic, because you and I, every one of us in this room, know people, have family members, have ourselves, not me, but have ourselves experienced divorce. And it is a difficult thing. It is, emotionally, spiritually, and in a lot of different ways. What Jesus is trying to encourage us, though, in is to remember the purpose of marriage in the first place. We live in a society that teaches us that it's all about you. Whatever it is, it's all about you. And the moment something fails to meet your needs at this moment, you throw it away. And that's the way a lot of people have adopted the ideas regarding marriage. I'm going to be married until I just don't want to anymore. And off you go. I've seen these people. You've seen these people. So, what's the conclusion? The purpose of marriage is 
companionship, procreation, and reflecting the relationship between Jesus and his church. Because of the hardness of our hearts, because of the reality of sin in our lives, God does permit a severing of this relationship in certain situations. It is never simple. It's never easy. It is the breaking of something that was meant to be one flesh. So, what do we do about it? Well, for us that are married, I would say, stay that way. Okay, let's just do that. Let's just start right there. For those who we know that are in the process of going through a divorce, we should encourage whatever it is, counseling, reading the, whatever it is, to try to restore the relationship. When that doesn't work, we need to what? Show love and be at peace with those around us. And that's not easy. Because you know what? They're doing something that I think is wrong. You know what? There are people casting out demons in your name and they're not part of us. It's okay. Be at peace. Be the salt and be at peace. Hard cases are hard because they're hard. If they were easy, They'd be easy. <laughs> That's why the Pharisees thought they could trap Jesus. But Jesus says, let's go back to the Old Testament. Let's go back to the way the world really is. This is the intent. And this is the cause of our hardened hearts. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, I pray, Lord, that we would deal with the temptation in our lives. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.